0: The story I read today from the book of Acts is appointed to be read throughout the church, throughout the world today, through what's called the common lectionary. It is a story for that reason that is familiar to many in the church and yet may also be new to some. I hope that whether you know this story or not, you'll listen to it as if hearing it for the first time. I'm gonna extend the reading to the 33rd verse. That's two extra verses and you'll hear why. From the book of Acts, listen for the word of God. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God what therefore you worship as unknown this I proclaim to you the God who made the world and everything in it he who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything Since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things, from one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. And he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for God and find God. Though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are God's offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now God commands all people everywhere to repent because God has fixed a day on which God will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom God has appointed. And of this God has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. But others said, We will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined Paul and became believers, including Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Holy Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be receptive to thee. O God, our strength and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. So I have a friend who I haven't talked to in years. He was an academic friend. He made his career teaching communication at the University of Washington and then at the University of Memphis from where he retired a few years ago. John had a business card, no surprise, but he was proud of the fact that on his business card he had no name of any institution with which he was tied. Instead, he followed an ancient tradition and simply listed himself as rhetorician. Rhetorician, a professional talker, a studied arguer, a renderer of language, a wooer of thought, a theorizer of human inclinations, an architect of human discourse, an artist of articulation, a manipulator of desire, a mediator of peace, persuader. In other words, rhetorician. After the story that you just heard, you might think that the Apostle Paul should have had a business card just like that one. Paul of Tarsus, rhetorician. For here, Paul's Jewish identity meets his Roman rhetorical education at the service of his Christian conviction. Paul, you see, was off on his missionary journeys with his team. They had had great success in Macedonia, so much so that a group came up to Macedonia from Thessalonica specifically to oppose Paul. Things got so delicate That Paul needed to be extracted. He was sent with some guides to Athens. While Silas and Timothy stayed behind for a bit of settling things down. In support of the young Macedonian church. And they would join Paul later. So Paul had time in Athens while he waited that great seat of ancient learning, that place of great accomplishment, and the arrogance that goes with that. We're told that Paul was distressed by the many layers of idol worship that he found in Athens. Well-developed, very sophisticated, So many things to capture people's attention and demand their devotion and inspire sacrifice. We might not have statues like they did back then, but we've probably, as many things that we worship in our own ways, from money or security, success, technology, sex, family, identity and authenticity, various causes of different kinds, things that we give life-defining worth to, which is the very definition of worship, to ascribe worth. Paul wandered the streets, observing the statuary of the Athenian gods, and the kinds of life that they inspired and he just couldn't help himself. He started engaging local Jews in the synagogue about all of this and then he ventured into the marketplace and started talking to all of the Greeks, the Epicureans, the Stoics, and the followers of other ideologies. Some called him a babbler, some called him a purveyor of foreign gods what strange things he was saying to them. He curried enough attention that he got an invitation, or in fact a command, to appear at the Areopagus. I suppose that might be like being invited onto a talk show today or getting a feature in the New York Times. The Areopagus was a hill northwest of modern-day Acropolis. The Acropolis, that great edifice to the blending of philosophy and politics and religion and power. The Areopagus was dedicated to the god of war and so also called Mars Hill. It was the site of the Athenian court where cases of homicide, arson, and religious conflict were judged. Now that's an interesting combination. Paul was summoned there to be heard and to be evaluated for the veracity of the arguments that he was making about Jesus. And so he got his rhetorical moment, and he did not disappoint. Paul's speech at the Areopagus is still studied today by seminarians, by preaching professors, by students and teachers of rhetoric. I encourage you to read it again some time and to try to imagine how he might have delivered it today in our time of many gods. There is a sophisticated theology at work in this little speech. In a few words, Paul philosophizes about one God as creator, about how tradition relates to truth, and about the idea of resurrection. We could ponder all of that but i want to talk to you about a rhetorical move that he makes and wonder what that move says about paul about jesus and about our faith even today hold tight we'll get there so paul paul's walking around the city of athens And he sees all of these statues to the gods of the day all around him. He notices both how devout the Greeks are and how clever. For as sincere as they are, they also hedge their bets a bit, just in case they might be overlooking something not wanting to miss out if there is a God who might have something for them who they don't yet know. Kind of like criticizing the development of artificial intelligence while you're still investing in Google and Microsoft. Kind of like getting the best health insurance policy you can possibly get while you're still working too hard and not getting enough sleep and exercising too little kind of like betting your happiness on your job or your health or your education while you're still going to church and confessing your sin. We all do it. We all trust our wits but leave a little room for prayer just in case. Me too, to be honest. I leave one pedestal empty, with no statue on top of it quite yet, with no fully formed belief or trust outlined there quite yet, just in case. Now I'm using the idea metaphorically, but Paul found it quite literally. He found a pedestal in Athens with no statue on it, Written on it was dedicated to an unknown God. I'm guessing Paul stood in front of this pedestal for the longest time. And I'm guessing at one point while he was standing in front of it, he began to smile. For in that empty place he saw possibility. He saw openness. He saw a way to identify with Greek devotion while still moving the hearts of his hearers, maybe. I don't think that he was being cynical or manipulative. I, I think he was being respectful and sensitive and open to the possibility that the God of Abraham, alive in Christ, was already at work among his hearers and he found the place in their experience where they might be a little open to what Dog Hammershaw would like to call the infinite possibility. My friends, he said when he was at the Areopagus, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. You value gods of great beauty and intelligence and ingenuity. You give them worth, which is your worship. You protect them and you trust them and you give your lives to them. You are a devout people willing to sacrifice for these things that you have made. And I see that you are also smart in all of this, knowing that these gods you worship might hide as much as they reveal. And so you have wisely made an altar that you haven't completely finished. You have wisely left a window open just a crack in case there is a wind to blow that you have not felt yet. To an unknown God, you have written there. I was impressed by this, my friends. I was impressed by your confidence and your humility. I was impressed by your desire to know more if more is to be known. I was impressed by the worship you give this God you do not yet know. And so you want to figure out where what I've been saying about Jesus fits? Right there. Behind that altar. In front of that altar. It is the wind that comes through that window. For I have known that God you worship there and that God has known me and that God is the one God of all things over all the gods that you worship over all the things that you have made that one God doesn't need our devotion or our protection or even our worship. For worship at this altar is the worship that makes all other values and all other beliefs and all other sacrifices possible. This is the God in whom we live and move and have our being. And he is the Jesus that I have been talking about. And he is very close. Some scoffed at Paul. Some said they would like to hear more and invited him back. And some heard enough to believe. But Paul, always a rhetorician, he, knew when to step back and give them work to do. A gifted preacher gave me some advice early in my ministry. If you've told the whole story, he said to me, You've told too much. Give them some work to do, he said. You don't persuade people. They persuade themselves by the work of the spirit in them. You just point in the right direction. You just point at the altar of the unknown God, he might just as well have said. And that's the move. Paul takes a just-in-case God and leverages the hint to open everything up. How do we do the same? How do we look at places that seem empty or unfinished or even abandoned by the gods that we cherish and see those places as wagers on surprise, as windows to God, as places where Christ might be revealed. Where are those places in your own heart where there is still enough wiggle room for God to get in? Where there's still enough openness for God to get your attention? Where there's still enough energy or hope for something to wake you up? Or catch your breath or evoke a little wonder in you or prick your compassion or spark a little desire to get out of yourself to inspire sacrifice look there and you'll find Christ does that mean that you take some time to ask the spirit to examine your heart and show such places Does that mean you do the long work of self-examination to be more honest with yourself? Does that mean that you rebalance how your head and your heart and your gut relate to each other so your creator might have a little more of you? I'll let you sort that out with God's help. But alongside the questions about your own heart, Let me ask you where the places are in your own life that aren't so full of schedules and expectations and worries that you can still find in them a minute to remember that you are created. Where you can acknowledge imperfection, see the rough edges, or admit that your vision might be a little cloudy. Where you can wait long enough to be surprised in a good way. Where you can let Jesus be your eyes. If Jesus were your eyes in those places, what would look different? Would you spend your money differently or your time? Would you shape your family life differently or seek a little help? where things are more murky than you care to admit? Would you pray a little bit more and insist on your way a little bit less? Would you say thank you for the good things and be a bit more patient with things that are yet to be healed? Would you let yourself be surprised? Think about your relationships. Look at the ones that might feel like there is no life left in them. Wonder if God has actually abandoned them as easily as you have. I don't mean the situations that you need to leave for safety's sake. Those need to be let go and given to prayer. I mean, those where you still might make a difference with God's help. I heard from someone whose marriage was collapsing. He felt that it was already over and abandoned. And in pondering what to do, he determined that in that place he might take a moment to see not what he could not control, to see not failure, but to see the possibility of God and to serve that. So in this case, just one story. He decided every morning to get up early and make his partner breakfast for no reason. He decided to say thank you to his partner a little more often. He decided to listen without speaking. And the ice began slowly to thaw. Suspicion subsided and work could begin. By believing that God might be where you think God is not surprise might occur. And so I've asked you about your heart. I've asked you about your life. Let me also ask you about the world out there. Where do you see places in the world where there is room for the Holy Spirit to shake things up? Places where you can still see the human side of things where others might see only battles to win or lose. Or places where you might see opportunities for justice, fair dealing, or peace, when others see only conflict to be manipulated. Or enterprises of any kind in business, or in ministry, or in other things that you do, where you can still see more than numbers, more than gain, or struggles for power where you can still imagine the kind of human community that makes godly love possible where you can see Jesus on the border on a church retreat in your neighborhood or at your school at Andre House or Yuma in the boardroom or in a negotiation, in Palestine, in the Ukraine, South Africa, or Allen, Texas, or today in the face of nature in Myanmar. Go there physically if you're called to, or go there in prayer or in other kinds of support if you can believe that even there the unknown God can be known and Christ can be seen. The rhetorician in the Apostle Paul saw the place where the Holy Spirit could be spied and he crafted words to point it out. And the one he pointed to, the very word of God, continues the work even now whispering in our hearts crafting new things in our lives offering hope in all the empty places of all the world so to the unknown god who knows our hearts and touches our lives and is alive in the world long before we know it amen